This episode is brought to you by the Brodies Tennis Invitational. If you've been glued to your screen watching all the action from SW19 and it's inspired you to get out there and watch some live tennis yourself, then the Brodies Tennis Invitational is your perfect post-Wimbledon fix. Live from the heart of Edinburgh City Centre at the Edinburgh International Conference Centre from the 28th to the 30th of September, this three-day tennis tournament combines world-class tennis talent with Scotland's rising tennis stars. And this year's event features not one, not two, but three Grand Slam finalists, including... Feliciano Lopez, Johanna Conta, Mark Filipousis, Marcos Bagdatis, Greg Rosetsky, Ali Collins, and fresh from her incredible run to the Wimbledon quarterfinals, Maya Lumsden. And if a day or weekend trip to Edinburgh for some top quality tennis doesn't sound enticing enough, we also have a very special offer for Tennis Weekly listeners. Yes, that's right. If you use our exclusive code WEEKLY10, you'll receive 10% off all tickets. That's WEEKLY10 for 10% off your tickets. Tickets start at £55. Go to brodiesinvitational.com for more information. And to purchase your tickets now, the link is in the description. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris. On today's Wimbledon Finals catch-up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Carlos Alcaraz wins his first Wimbledon title. Von Drusova goes from tourist to champion. And Neil Skupski bags his first ever men's doubles title. Kim, Chris, today is the 16th of July and we are here to catch up on the finals of Wimbledon. Marketa von Drusova and Carlos Alcaraz are your singles champions. There's been British success as well. Neil Skupski in the men's doubles, Henry Searle in the boys' singles and Gordon Reed, Alfie Hewitt in the wheelchair men's doubles as well. So there's a lot to talk about. We're going to be revealing our collector set winner as well. But first, we've got to talk. We're back as a three. The men's final has just happened. How are we doing? Have we all been able to exhale after that truly epic four and a half hour duel? I'm not sure I'm ready. I think I need some group therapy because... I cannot believe what we just witnessed on Centre Court. I don't know about exhaling out. I screamed when Alcaraz won because I was just... It got to the point where the nerves and the stress watching it were building to a high. And I thought, can he do this? Can he get over the finish line against Novak Djokovic? I was just waiting for the Djokovic comeback that that didn't happen. I was in, in my head sort of formulating the, you know, the, the Twitter meme of like, Novak Djokovic won this match with an image of the of the scoreboard. And maybe it was like 40 love Carlos Alcaraz a game away. But no, it, it did not happen, did it? No, and he didn't seem as surprised as we all were. I think when he was interviewed afterwards, he seemed to be like, yes, it's been great. I've won Queens and I've won Wimbledon. I'm like, no, you've won Wimbledon. No one wins Wimbledon except for four players. <laughs> four players in the last 20 years. I mean, the last time someone who wasn't the big four won Wimbledon, Carlos Alcaraz wasn't even born, which just goes oh, to show that crazy. the magnitude of, it is crazy. of his defeat and of his of his victory, sorry, and Djokovic's defeat the first time in 10 years he's lost on centre court. So this was not an ordinary win by any means. This was absolutely stunning, you know, especially after that first set. And I do enjoy, before we all kind of gorge into the action, I do enjoy Chris because me and Kim, you know, we're watching from the, the comforts of our own home, but 
you you are thinking about the tennis next week as well as uh, as well as having a little bit of an eye on on center court well, yes, I'm actually in Bostor for the tennis tournament that's starting, um, as I call it, the Casper Rude Open. Um, uh, a 250 on clay uh, just after Wimbledon, so you can guarantee that he will be here. But uh, I've been watching, I've been uh, live streaming at the moment. Are you really and, desperate um, to ask him how, how were the weekend concerts? <laughs> I'm in press. I, I think he's been asked that a few times, Joel. I think okay. we don't want to fall We don't under need to ask same, it again. Yeah, okay. we've got something a bit different, like... Um, ask his views on, I don't know, like a, an Elton John for you, maybe? Did he go to Elton John? <laughs> that would keep you happy. Well, yeah, what's next on the, what's next on the next gig? Year. What's next on the gig calendar after the weekend? That's what I want to know. Exactly. Yeah. So please do send us your questions if they're better than Joel's. Did he get Taylor Swift tickets uh, for next <laughs> yeah, year? <laughs> yes, he was in the queue for a long time. <laughs> yes, I mean, listeners, yes, we do. We are hopefully going to get some time with Kasper Rude and Andre Rublev uh, later in the week. So if you do have any questions genuinely for them, let us know uh, through social media or on email tennisweeklypod at gmail.com. But we are going to be talking about the tennis today, aren't we, guys? Carlos Alcaraz versus Novak Djokovic in the men's finals. A lot of celebrities there as well. We we unfortunately weren't able to get access, but yeah, we were very much kind of glued to our screens all afternoon, weren't we? I don't think we've got celebrity status yet. I mean, we're not really on the on a par with Daniel no. Craig, Brad Pitt, Hugh Jackman, Stormzy. I think was there as well. So we very some, exciting. Some, we've been, all week we've seen celebrities. I saw Emma Watson was there. Lewis Capaldi was there yesterday across both finals. Yeah. I think um, it's certainly the case. There's been royals. There's been celebrities. Um, but tennis week has not infiltrated the finals no. just yet. I'm I'm always interested when, when they show the celebrities, like who made it into the royal box mm-hmm. and who didn't make it into the royal box. To me, that's the big question because, you know, I think, for example, like Brad Pitt, um, wasn't in the royal box. Hugh Jackman, he was in. He was in what Novak Djokovic's player box. So they're all about. I just assume like they're all going to be fitted into the royal box somehow. But they're all dotted around centre court, aren't they? I think there was too much royalty in the royal box for them to have space today because we had King Felipe mm, of Spain, and then yeah. we had the, the the Prince and Princess of Wales, and Prince George, Princess Charlotte, who I'm sure both of them were supporting Alcaraz. I think they were quite chuffed when he won. Um, and they got to meet him afterwards, which was really sweet, I thought. Super nice. But I think the lesson here is do whatever you can to get a seat, whether you have to be in a player box, if you have to work as the janitor, um, do what you can to get in there because with all those celebrities, it's hard to get one of those tickets. Yeah. And um, what a match they were treated to, you know, however they managed to get hold of the ticket because we did have a five set thriller. Uh, it didn't look like it was going to go that way after the first set. Six ones Djokovic. Um, it was pretty one sided. I was getting quite worried that this was going to be a real you know, annihilation. Was it going to be more stress cramping from Alcaraz? You know, I thought, is he is he just not able to cope with playing Djokovic at a Grand Slam? But obviously in the second set, he managed to to get into his groove. Uh, it ended up going to a tie break. And for me, looking back, once we saw what happened in the rest of the match, I look back to that set point Djokovic had in the tie break. If he'd have got that, he would have been two sets up. And you've got to think he would have gone on to win had he taken that. It felt like a really big moment and it was a surprising moment that you felt that Novak Djokovic would have been aware of how big that point was. Um, Because to me, throughout the match, there was almost too many regulation misses in terms of his, particularly on the forehand side. I don't think it was like particularly firing. And although this match, I think, was a a five set thriller 
and drama to me was there in abundance and really captivated the crowd. Do I think this was a technical showing of their best tennis? I would probably say no. I think we've seen Carlos Alcaraz play better tennis more consistently. I certainly think we've seen better tennis from, from Novak Djokovic. But in terms of drama, it really did live up to the bidding. I think the drama in part was related to some of the umpire getting involved because in the second set tie break, he did give Djokovic a time violation. Um, And we also saw later on Djokovic arguing about um, needing more time because, you know, the players don't get given the towels anymore by the ball kids. They have to go and walk to the towel. So he was arguing that he should have more time before the the clock started uh, before serving. And then we also saw uh, him get a ball abuse, a racket abuse warning um, where he, you know, he really hit that net post and dented it um, right in front of the umpire as well. There was there was no hiding. The racket got bent in two. I personally, just on that last note, I think a warning wasn't enough. I think for, for actually actively damaging a piece of on-court furniture, that should have been a point penalty. I think the umpire was too lenient in that situation. I probably would agree there, to be honest, because... We've seen a bit of a different note about Djokovic this Wimbledon. He has been very irritated. And at times I do think we've talked about it on the podcast that, for example, the hindrance call I didn't think was warranted. Um, and that was probably a bit too harsh. But whereas this one, I do agree that if you are damaging um, a piece of the property that they have or a bit of court furnishing, then absolutely that has to be, um, it can't be, it can't be allowed really. Um because you're not just damaging the racket, you're actually damaging the court. And when they do say warning, I think they say warning racket abuse. Um, it's also it's also racket, uh, the, the post abuse. So um, I think it is strange seeing him in that sort of way. But I think it was testament to the fact that he was not finding it easy out there. And he really was trying to fire something up in him because um, that was real frustration. That wasn't any sort of on-court antics. That was that was real. Yeah, his, he was walking to the net there. And we also had that, what, that 26-minute game where, where Carlos Alcaraz broke. So there was just plenty of, of dramatic moments, um, you know, through the match. All I will just add on that post is I'm expecting that to go up for auction by by Wimbledon for the Wimbledon Foundation, Novak Djokovic Foundation. I think that's going to collect good money. I yeah, I've seen it away already. I can see <laughs> Novak Djokovic fans clamouring for a piece, of, a piece of history, I would say, on centre court. Or maybe Carlos Alcaraz fans uh, would be more likely to <laughs> buy Rafael Nadal fans. <laughs> um, I mean, and Roger Federer fans, I'm sure Federer fans are quite pleased that their man still has, you know, a record eight titles and Djokovic will have to wait another year to have a go at equaling that record because uh, Alcaraz has, has stopped in him doing that today. I did think Djokovic wasn't at sorts. Um, you know, he, he seemed a bit ungainly at times with some of his movement. I, he looked he quite did tired. Yeah, and he had some strapping on like the, his inner thigh. And I, I mean, I, you know, I sort of take strapping and sort of injury uh, uh, with a bit of a pinch of salt when it comes to Djokovic because we have seen him have things before and it's, you know, hasn't really affected him. But I do wonder if maybe there was something going on where he wasn't quite feeling it because he definitely, you know, once he dropped that second set, he did seem to be struggling um, with, with, I guess, how well Alcaraz had started playing. And he was just getting frustrated. And it, we saw, yeah, elements of a quite a negative attitude at times, um, which definitely didn't help his cause. And I felt like there was some kind of woe is me moments uh, where he didn't like the wind. He wasn't happy with the crowd. Um, and I think that all of that combined, yeah, just didn't 
help his case. It was very blustery, wasn't it? Particularly earlier on um, in in the match, and uh, I, I was glad that you know the, the roof wasn't on. But to be honest, in that first set, it, it didn't really matter because Carlos Alcaraz hadn't really turned up, and it was very much a, a horror start from him, wasn't it? You know, given that given that first set, my first question to you guys is: Were you surprised given the level he showed? in that second set how do you feel like he he was able to turn it around to take it from being breadsticked by Novak Djokovic before nabbing that second set on a tie break what was really impressive and this is something that really will show one of the ways he did it was I think he did go for more on his second serve um in the first set he won just 14 percent of points behind the second serve which um I mean that really is not good at all uh, and then the second set he actually upped it to winning 67 percent so um, it's a case where he was going for a bit more on that serve and he was kind of um, getting a bit more on the ball because uh, Djokovic was eating it up in the first set. It was very, very comfortable. Um, and I think he, he really just needed to hang in there as long as possible to give himself a chance to play better tennis because we've seen the nerves before. We've seen him cramp in the semifinals in Paris. And it felt like a bit of a hangover from that was that first set where he didn't quite get going. And as Kim said, if if he had lost that second set, I think we would have had a pretty straightforward third set, um, maybe a 6-3 set to follow that as opposed to winning in five and taking that second set on the tie break. But for me, it was all hinged on that tie break and I could not believe Novak Djokovic was making unforced errors in a tie break, losing his first one in his last 15 or 16, I believe. So what what did you think when you saw that tie break? Because that's so un-Djokovic-like. Yes, a couple of errors from set point up. And I mean, he was three love up in that tiebreak as well, wasn't he? So Alcaraz did really well to kind of come back and stay in it. And on that set point he had, you know, it was just a, a moment of wonder, I guess, to, for, for Alcaraz to, to get it. And I think that was a pivotal moment, but also that long, yeah, 20, 25 minute game in the, in the, at 3 1 in the, in the third set. If that had gone Djokovic's way, you know, would he have then immediately broken back? I was kind of thinking the winner of that game was going to go on to win the set, which is what happened. You know, Alcaraz, you know, got that game, got the, had the double break, held, and then and then broke for six one. So um, that was a, another very momentous, almost like a match within itself. It was like a microcosm of the, of the entire match, and the longer it went on, you know, the more important that became that that game. It just shows, I think, the beauty of, and I, I think well, we have this debate all the time around a lot of people want to see, you know, no ad scoring in men's singles matches, but you don't get the beauty of these, as you said, matches within matches. And this was such a, a battle and, and a test. And I love the, like, the microcosm nature of it in terms of Novak Djokovic is serving. Can Carlos Alcaraz break him? And both players really, I think, sensed how big that moment was Novak Djokovic was not giving it up very easily and Carlos Alcaraz was was you know was doing what he wanted to do to try and continue that momentum from the the second set and when he got it you did really feel like oh hang on is this going to be Carlos Alcaraz's time I think for me that moment more than the tie break was when I started to believe hang on this could be an upset on the cards I think that's when I first thought oh could he actually do this but when it went to a fourth set, I thought he needs to win in four. If it's going five, it's Djokovic's. So that's for me the most, I don't know, astonishing thing is that 
Alcaraz, you know, it went to five and Alcaraz was the one to get the break and then just keep holding his serve and, and to serve it out. You know, he played that drop shot, didn't execute, you know, in, the, in his final service game, went love 15 down and the sort of audacity to try that again and for it to pay off and then to just, you know, serve pretty strong and to do it on his first championship point. That was just, you know, remarkable. And I thought, what a level-headed young man to kind of, get the job done did you um, did you feel like moments. Carlos Alcaraz went out to win that that fifth set or did you feel like Novak Djokovic lost it because you would have thought the momentum was with Djokovic given he won the fourth set I had a sneaking feeling like oh here we you know here we go Alcaraz has lost his moment he maybe yeah should have tried to nip it in the bud in in four he was playing well and I think um you will keep getting chances he moves well on the surface now um, he was being aggressive and I mean Novak Djokovic showed in that match he his level dipped as well so I think it was a match where it was a bit of an arm wrestle in terms of who was playing well who wasn't playing as well and there were periods where they both played well um, but for me I think there was that break point early in that fifth set and I thought Djokovic is gonna start to pull away here um, and he didn't uh, and the opposite happened. So I think as we talked about, I mean, we do sound like the classic commentators of a point here, a point there, can change everything, a turning point. <laughs> but um, it did feel like it, whoever got that first break was going to be um, definitely on the front foot. And then as, as Kim said, to serve it out from that position, I think we were all still thinking Djokovic is going to break back. It's going to happen. And it's going to be the headline of like the comeback in the one that got away in that game when Alcaraz did serve for it, he was he was love 15 he, he tried he went to the drop shot and it went you know went into the net and I think everyone was kind of like oh here we here we go but here we go I, I just loved how fearless he was in in that moment because we've seen decision making go awry from other players who've, who've been in a similar situation and it's just gone against them but I loved how he just didn't let that moment eat at him and got on with it. He found some first serves. And I think that was really, really important when, you know, Novak Djokovic was not missing on the return, but he just did so well, I think, to, to close it because the more that would have gone on, the more you just sensed if, if Djokovic had, had broken there, it would have been game over. He also found the volley, didn't he? I think yes. one of the things that we were talking about was um, Carl, uh, Carlos Alcaraz on grass. And it's this idea that all these aspects he's added to his game. And he said he was surprised he's playing so well on grass. And when he moves forward, it just looks so natural. And some players, I mean, this might be a bit harsh to Andy Roddick because I do really like him. But at times he'd, he'd be a bit stranded at the net. And today Djokovic was a bit stranded at times at the net. Um, but Alcaraz wasn't really. He kind of had a really good instinct. Um, and especially if he knew he was a bit nervous off the ground in that final game, he did keep pushing forward. So... I just think it's just so impressive. He's done it on grass before he's done it on clay. Because um, I don't think that was on my bingo card that he would win Wimbledon and maybe not the French this year. So I don't know. Was that a surprise to you? I mean, is that a testament to, you know, the, the changing nature of, of grass courts? I, I know we, we talk about grass courts are getting slower. The bounces are, are getting higher. Do you think Carlos Alcaraz winning Wimbledon adds evidence to, to that point of view? The US Open's a very quick slam in terms of the ball speed. Yeah. Um, uh, not, well, it's a, a different sort of slam. It's not, they say the quickest compared to grass, but it does keep very low. And I do think there's probably um, something to be said that we talk a lot about his clay results, but he's now won two slams that aren't on clay. Um, so it's more about the other surfaces might be changing. But when it comes to 
to Wimbledon, you aren't able to control how it will bounce that year. It's very weather dependent. So we'll have to see how many Wimbledons he wins uh, and how much sun we've had. I mean, if he's done it now against, you know, a seven-time champion at such a young age, you've got to think he's definitely got several more Wimbledons in him and he should, in theory, win on all four, uh, you know, at all four Grand Slams. He's already done it on two. He's two from two in major finals, which is, you know, fantastic. And I mean, he's the third youngest man to win the Wimbledon title. Only Boris Becker and Bjorn Borg have done it. Um at younger ages uh it's just even even rafa didn't win it this young you know it took him three finals and he was about 22 so he's uh exceeded that as well is this a changing of of the guard between novak djokovic and carlos alcaraz because you sense you know these obviously players from different generations uh, you know djokovic hadn't lost on this court for over a decade andy murray was there he was watching do you sense this moment is now it's carlos alcaraz's time I think it has to be. I think for so long, um, we were very much, and even up until that French Open semi-final, I think we were sort of pretending that Carlos was number one in many ways when Djokovic hadn't played so many tournaments or the big matches or, or been in the mix because of the fact he was he was absent. And um, it felt like... He was still the pretender. Yeah, because he hadn't won a, a slam where he'd beaten Novak Djokovic. Um, so that number one seeding at this Wimbledon did feel a little bit off. Obviously, it's been proven to be absolutely right. Um, they were one and two. But for me, it does really symbolise that this is one where he's done it against Novak Djokovic for the world number one ranking. He now holds two of the Grand Slams. Um, he very much is the world number one. So I think it does symbolise that there is a balance shift, maybe not a full changing of the guard. I think Djokovic has got more slams in him. I don't see this as a sudden decline, like he's not going to win another slam. And I think he may well beat Alcaraz in a future slam. Um, but I think this means that, you know, Alcaraz absolutely deserves to be world number one. You know, this was also, they were playing to decide the world number one ranking because if Djokovic had won today, he would have reclaimed it back. Um I think they are the, obviously the far and away the, the top two players on the tour and the rankings and the current Grand Slam, you know, holders. It reflects all of that. Um, I think Alcaraz is in a great position because if you think about it, in the next few years, it's likely that Djokovic will retire. And is there another player at the moment that's going to take that kind of mantle? Um, you know, who is going to be the the main rival for for Alcaraz in the next kind of era i mean wimbledon would love to think it's yannick sinner um and, yeah, and it would. may well be but he's still got you know you compare how sinner did against djokovic um and other players alcaraz obviously was able to do so much more uh which just shows i think that he's obviously a cut above the rest of the field at the moment yeah it, it definitely feels both these players are playing tennis that is is levels above the, the nearest competition and who knows you know maybe you know for the rest of the season it's just going to be the it could just be the Novak Djokovic Carlos Alcaraz show you know up to and including the US Open and I'd love to see it uh, you know continue um, we saw it at the French Open I think personally that was a little bit of a, a false start a little bit anticlimactic but certainly I think this lived up to the billing and I hope it continues for the rest of the season Kim I've got to ask you you know you're a Rafa fan. What do you think is going through Rafa's head in terms of seeing 
Carlos Alcaraz winning at Wimbledon, you know, fellow compatriot. The King of Spain as well, watching on. I saw Rafa post afterwards on Instagram. My Spanish, I'm not going to lie, is not, not particularly great. So I'm not really sure what he said. But what do you think was going through his head? Oh, I haven't looked on my Instagram yet. So I'm a bit behind <laughs> on the socials. <laughs> well, I think Rafa would just be absolutely chuffed for him. I mean, you know, he's not someone who's going to be like oh I didn't do it at age 20 you know he's just genuinely <laughs> going to be so pleased for Alcaraz like he's the future of Spanish tennis he's learned from Rafa he, he grew up you know watching him and being inspired by him and and other players obviously as well Federer and what have you so I think Rafa will just be will be chuffed um I think it's it's hard not to warm to Alcaraz, isn't it? He's such a nice guy. And you could see that in the speech after and how he dealt with the victory and how he is with the fans. It's he's just It was such a joy to watch him afterwards as well as during the match. I was wondering whether he was like secretly hoping maybe Carlos Alcaraz would get bageled six love in that first set. Because you, you posted on our on our WhatsApp group that... But Rafa, didn't he got bageled, didn't he, by Roger Federer um, all those years ago? In, the, in Was it the 2006 Wimbledon final? And, yeah. it, it, and, and the start for you from Alcaraz was sort of, for you, was sort of screaming that uh, that matchup. Yeah, Rafa's first final against uh, Federer, it, the scoreline was like six. It was four sets Rafa lost, but he lost the first set to love. And I thought, oh, this this is like reminiscent of that. Maybe, you know, Alcaraz will, <laughs> will get a set, but, you know, he's going to go down. And But, you know, maybe next year he'll have a chance like Rafa did. But but no, Alcaraz was having none of that. So I, I was pleased it didn't end up going the same way. And moving on from the match and looking ahead, we've got the final Grand Slam to come in the year. Who would you say at the moment goes into that as the favourite? Is it is it Carlos Alcaraz or, or is it Novak Djokovic? Tricky. I mean, Alcaraz is the defending champion and the US Open is Djokovic's, well, one of his his least <laughs> successful slams, you know, compared to Australia. So perhaps I'd give the edge to Alcaraz. Yeah. But I think we'll, we'll see on the form, you know, in, in like the, the, the build up tournaments and masters. Um, maybe Djokovic will take a bit more of an extended break. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to see how he plans his, his build up to the next slam because Obviously, we didn't see him play a build-up event before Wimbledon. Um, so may- maybe he'll change his his schedule a bit and think, oh, maybe I need a bit more bit more match practice. I, mean, I, don't, I really don't know. But I'm going to give the edge to Alcaraz if, if we have to pick. <laughs> I probably would do the same. But my, my favourite for the final has to be Casper Ruud. He's got to be there. Every year, those two finals and, and not much else in between, potentially. But his his Grand Slam history, it's just up and down, up and down, up and down. So he's had the down at Wimbledon. Again, if, if it goes to form, it's it should be up at, uh, at the US Open. At least a semi-final, you'd think. But um, but no, I think it's, it's going to be interesting. And I think it's actually a really interesting time because they are both playing at the same time. We do have this crossover. So as Kim kind of said, it might be a bit of a yo-yo between them. They might win one, they might split the slams, but at least we're getting some incredible finals, incredible matches at slams because we have had quite a lot of straightforward victories for Novak Djokovic. Um, Too many. years. Too many. So here's to a five-set defeat. Yeah, (laughs) we'll drink to that for now. Um, Let's have a look at what else has happened at Wimbledon today because on court at the moment, we've got the ladies' doubles final. We've got Storm Hunter and Elise Mertens, the third seeds, against Sue Weishay and Barbora Stritzkova. Um, I mean, re- really, they should also be seeded. They're, they're unseeded because they're they're kind of coming back. Stritzkova's obviously come back from having a, a baby. Um, 
at the moment, that's going seems to be going into a tie break in in the first set. They've had to, a long old wait, haven't they, for the men's final to, to finish before getting on court. Um, but earlier today, we, as Joel mentioned earlier, we had a British champion. Uh, Henry Searle became the first British player to win the boys' single since 1962. Uh, crazy. It's over 60 years. And he was unseeded as well. He's had to come through a load of seeded players um, to win the title. He beat, um, I think, a Russian player today, 6-4, to win. And he's only 17. So actually, he'll be going on to the, the, the adult tour soon. Um, so this is a fantastic start uh, to, to for, for transitioning, I guess, onto the adult circuit. Yeah, I'm really excited to see a new prospect potentially come onto the tour. I know it doesn't always necessarily be a smooth transition from boys and, and juniors events into the into the main tour proper. But again, really, really excited, really, really chuffed for Henry to see how he does. The only thing I'm a little bit gutted by was the boys singles final was on at the same time as the uh, the gentlemen's singles final. So almost this sort of historic news, I think, was a little bit lost given the drama that we were seeing unfold on centre court. Yeah, it was a bit of a shame that it, it that it clashed. I think they used to do it like earlier in the day because I remember watching the juniors before the the main action. It was on a different court, but they used to, I think, do it earlier. But, um, but regardless, Searle will be pleased to have you know, I did enjoy also, Kim, um, you said he he's, he's the first Brit to win the boys singles title since 1962. And the player who did that in 1962 was a fella named Stanley Matthews Jr. And Stanley Matthews is a very famous uh, English footballer. And uh, yeah, his son uh, won the, 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 the Wimbledon boys title. So um, must run in the family. But um, yeah, a long, long time coming, perhaps arguably it may be a bit too long um, in terms terms of British tennis and their hopes and ambitions for you know their home slam it's not just you know all the other uh, titles but the, the, the doubles boys titles, as well. Joel, that's what well the doubles what exactly that's what we've just been focusing on the last you know 40 50 years but um yeah really nice to see uh talent coming through in the junior events as well Yes, exactly. Let's take a very quick break now. We'll be back in the second half looking at all the action from the ladies final and all of the other finals uh, from the weekend. Uh, Plus, we'll be revealing our collector set champion as well. So do not go anywhere. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to look back at the ladies final from Saturday. Marquetta von Drusseva against Onjabor. Onjabor in yet another Wimbledon final. She was aiming to finally get her hands on the Venus Rosewater. But it looks like she's going to have to wait another year at least because she lost in straight sets. 6-4-6-4. Von Drusseva becoming the first unseeded Wimbledon champion in the open era uh, which is amazing um, Joel you said it was heartbreaking for Onjabor mm. what were you thinking during the course of this match how how far away was she from from achieving her goal yeah it was it was tough to watch at times particularly I think in the in the ceremony afterwards she said it was the most painful loss of of her career and um, you know to see her go from the highs of of defeating Sabalenka to 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 this result, um, yeah, would be uh, you know a, you know from her point of view a real shame. And it was a very odd match, I feel, because it was very 
uh, again, it was very up and down, in particularly in the sets. There were lots of breakpoint opportunities, wins against serve. So it was nervous at times and it almost felt like the player who was going to hold their nerve um, the best um, was going to win that match. And I thought that might have been on Jabor, given she's been in this situation before. She had the crowd on her side, but Marketa von Drusseva, she is just a... She is a cold customer on the court and she doesn't let anything phase her. And, um, you know, yes, I think she was maybe helped a little bit by some streaky errors from from Onzibor at times. But I think she just realised and grabbed the moment, seized it better than Onzibor. And I think that was the thing that I think took us all by surprise. There was this real sense, wasn't there, before this, that this was... Vons Jabeur's destiny that this yeah, was supposed it was to her be her. Time. It's mm. kind of strange because I think people forgot Von Drusseva was almost playing and she wasn't going to, you know, just hand over the dish to, to Vons Jabeur at all. So do you think that helped her in, in the build up that there was just literally it was all all the talk felt like all the hype was on ons, ons, ons? Yeah, I think that's kind of helped her throughout the tournament. She's kind of silently gone through and been one of the names in the quarterfinals that you think very experienced, has been here before, but probably wasn't people's pick. And people weren't talking about it as being kind of on her racket in the same way they were with with Ons this time and having been so close last time. Um, I think especially the roof being shut has a big impact on this because that is almost the perfect sort of um, conditions for someone like Von Drusseva to just hit um, hit freely um, and have quite a lot of confidence that board is going to drop in if she times it right whereas we can see just how crafty and just how much variety Ons is able to um, create when she is playing against some of these big hitters and it definitely would affect a swirling ball would really would have affected how that match could have played out but one thing that it wouldn't have affected is the serve and for me for Ons this was the bit that let her down the most and it has done throughout the tournament but 48% of first serve um, of first serves in 48% one on the first serve and 45 for the second they aren't match winning numbers and she's got through a couple of these matches with some pretty poor servers numbers but it's very hard to lead from the front foot when you are getting less than 50% of your first serve in yeah, and it's a shame because we saw after the Sabalenka match, you know, she was saying that the old uh, Ons wouldn't have come through that match in the in the semi. Um, but unfortunately, we seem to have a bit of more of the old Ons back in the final because she just got nervy, didn't she? It was both sets, it was four all. And that's when she kind of started hitting more wayward shots, really not, 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 you know, coming um, with the tennis that you need to win, uh, you know, that you need to play to win a Wimbledon title. And it was kind of almost a repeat, you know, set on set. Um, and Von Drusseva just had to kind of hold her nerve. And, you know, Ons just did help her along the way. I'm not taking anything away from Von Drusseva, but Ons gave her a lot of free points from those moments on. And Von Drusseva, full credit to her, she, she, you know, head down, got the job done. And I think, you know, the way she plays, um, it's very different to a lot of on um Onz's previous opponents. So I think Jabor might have been a bit thrown by that. And you know, obviously Von Drusva has had really good success against Jabor this year. So she's obviously the way their game styles match up, Von Drusva knew that she'd had previous success and she kind of needed to do more of the same and disrupt Jabor's rhythm. I mean, arguably, you'd say Marketa von Drusseva, a year ago, she was a tourist uh, at Wimbledon. Um, there's a photo, I think, of her with her cast on her wrist. You know, we know her injury troubles and the, the surgeries that she's had. 
how impressed have you been with that journey she's been on over the last year? Because I would arguably say everyone was talking about Elena Svitolina's comeback and how impressed we've been in terms of her getting to a quarterfinal at the French Wimbledon semi-final. But the Von Drusova story is also really incredible. It is. It's amazing. And especially because I do think that people did write her off as kind of uh, that Conta should have won that semi-final. Von Drusova shouldn't have made that 2019 um, final in Paris and that she didn't necessarily put in the best showing in that final and that was kind of the narrative people had given her but we've I think we've all seen her play um, live at, at some point and when she's playing for her country I mean she is an unbelievable player um, each part of her game works so well together to create a really really well-rounded sort of all-court player um, a tricky sort of lefty as well and so for me it's um it's great to see that she's gone from kind of being the the forgotten finalist in some ways um, to kind of really getting herself back up there. And now with a career high ranking of number 10, uh, it'll be interesting to see. And we hope this won't be kind of another single slam winner from a single slam mm. finalist. Well, I, I need to be the person who asks that question on the podcast. Is she a double specialist? No, sorry. That's the is... other question you ask. <laughs> no. <laughs> is is Marketa Von Drusva, is she going to be a one, a one slam wonder? Is that a negative question, Joel? I know. She's I know. The I know. Sorry. How many? How many okay, can I'm going to yeah, say it go. more positively. How many Grand Slam titles can Marketa von Drusseva go on to win? Look, there I said it. I said it in the most diplomatic way I could. Clay, I reckon I can see her winning a French in a couple of years, maybe. I think it probably won't happen next year. I think it's very hard to back it up the year after. Um, but I do think on Clay, she's particularly good and... I, I think she'll win another one. I do. It's interesting you say that because we've got two champions, Von Drusseva and Alcaraz, and you'd, you'd arguably say that if there was one Grand Slam that they were going to win their first one at, it was the French Open, but they seem to both have done really, really well on, on Wimbledon this year. But they barely played on grass is the crazy thing. Um, I was reading this, that prior to... Um, this is at WTA events. So she has done well um, at some ITF events on grass, but prior to this win at Wimbledon she'd only won four matches um on grass which is kind of crazy it's even more crazy that Martina Hingis actually holds the record for the fewest one before their first Wimbledon title with just three wins um and Alcaraz wasn't that many more so maybe we should as as we have done before rip up the rule book when it comes to form and uh Go for someone who's never played on grass before, really. I mean, does that suggest that, as I said earlier, grass is becoming a lot more like other surfaces? It's not as like an unknown and different and alien to kind of court surfaces before. And actually it's becoming similar. And, and credence to that is the fact that some players who have had very little prep, um, have had very little practice on it, can just come up play their brand of tennis and in Marquetta von Drusseva's case go on and win the title I think also with that players are just becoming more adaptable you know I think both von Drusseva and Alcaraz they don't they're not very experienced grass court players but if you've got a good tennis brain you can adapt and you obviously put put the work in off court um do your research and maybe we need to get a, a bit away from this kind of putting people in boxes um saying certain players are specialists on one surface or on another. Maybe there is just a, a, a better adaptability Kim. now. A generalist, which is what you want to be, isn't it, really? Um, and, and able to adapt. Um, 
So I'm not sure. It might be a bit of both, Joel, I think. She's definitely got the X factor, I was going to say. I think there are some players like, I mean, not to kind of, I, I do really like Jesse Pagula, but still yet to go past the quarterfinal stage of a slam, was 4-1 up, had points for 5-1 to, te- uh, to almost certainly take out Von Drusova. And then Von Drusova ended up serving for that at 5-4. It does make you feel that there are just some, if you're able to keep a level head, um, a lot of the field in those big moments at the end of slams won't be able to. And she did the exact same thing against Conta in Paris in 2019, kept a level head, didn't do anything spectacular. And some players don't quite get over the line when it comes to the mental side of things. And she seems to be very, very much, um, as you said, a cool customer. I think that's what's so frustrating about Onjabor because after that Sabalenka match in the semi-final, I would have been like, she does have the X factor. And it was just frustrating, I think, that we just didn't we just didn't see that. It didn't turn up in, in the final. And, um, you know, she came out on, on Twitter, on, on social media afterwards, and she said, we are going to make it one day, I promise. So sad. She's made it already, Joel. She's made it already. I know, two Wimbledon finals, nothing to, to sniff about. I mean, what do you think she needs to do to get over this in terms of if she's in a Grand Slam final again, what does she need to do differently? get on the phone to a sports psychologist maybe to to work out how to handle these obviously very intense emotions that almost cripple her in some ways when it comes to the final um she's obviously three finals now and three finals lost um and yeah i think almost she needs to care less and have like lower expectations and just even if she's like the higher seeded player just think of herself as like the underdog just go for it think okay no pressure like almost like reconceptualize how she's approaching it which is going to get harder the more final she's in because there's, there's going to be more pressure like will she finally a bit like when FAA was you know finally trying to win a title after about eight finals it's only going to get worse and worse um but you know other players have been in three grand slam finals or more and then you know finally won like Andy Murray for example so Tim Clijsters she was yeah. seeking comfort in and it does feel like don't you just think that when it when it comes to this and getting over the line it doesn't actually matter um how you play against players playing well She's got to beat players who aren't playing the best tennis she's ever played. She almost has to be in that mega inspired moment. Like at the US Open final, that set against Eager, they were both playing fantastic tennis, but she's got to win on the tour much more regularly against players that she should be beating. And I think that will put her in such a better stead because she'll know she can win with a B game or she'll know she can win if she's feeling a bit tight or not quite right. Because that's kind of what I feel like you're sort of saying, Kim, there is that she's got to not let it feel like a grandstand final. Mm. She's got to focus on getting the job done in front of her. I think she needs to add Princess Kate into her player box because she had some words to impart on on, on Zubor after the match. She said, uh, well, this was from on Zubor. She said, same thing after last year to encourage me to be strong, to come back and win a Grand Slam and win a Wimbledon. And I do believe she's going to, it's going to be really hard, but she needs to believe that she can win. And after three finals, yeah, perhaps a sports psychologist is going to help her get into that right frame of mind because it's only going to get more challenging but I do really hope we don't see a hangover for this from this um you know for the rest of the year she played she did play some great tennis in in this tournament and she shouldn't be too downhearted I think about the re- the result in the final but I think it's going to take some time to get over I think another strategy might be to 
I don't know, book tickets for something in the second week of Wimbledon next year, book a holiday, go and, you know, book tickets to Harry Styles. And then, you know, just assume <laughs> you're not going to make it there and you will. Like maybe, you know, book get a flight. Someone... Book a flight mm. to Ibiza. Yeah, Have go to Ibiza like, uh, like Ken you know. Skupski. Yeah, exactly. Like Ken Skupski's <laughs> had to come back from Ibiza to watch Neil in the doubles final. Von Drusa's husband was looking after the cat at home in the Czech Republic. Mm. So... Um, make other Assume plans. Assume you won't make it. Assume yeah. you won't, yes. <laughs> Chris, you told me you've seen pictures of this this cat mm. because there has been a lot of talk about the, the cat sitting uh, because what? Uh, the, the, what the, her husband uh, was, was, was cat sitting. Was, was yes, cat indeed. Sitter, then he came and they over had to find a final. cat sitter for the final. Exactly. Um, and now there is a cat sitter. The cat sitter was able to look after the cat and now her mother will look after the cat. So it seems like it it was a choice between her husband, her mother, the cat. I'm, and I also just think... Um, I'm a I've great seen... cat sitter. How did I not get the call? Well, you were busy recording this podcast, Joel. <laughs> that's, that's you you have commitments. True. Yeah, um, that is very true. No, but I think the cat was an interesting choice of cat. I mean, she's quite an interesting character. She's got all these ta- different tattoos. Um, as we said, she's a cool customer and she's got a hairless cat. You know, that's quite a, a rock star move. So... Um, I, I was kind of expecting the perfect side of it to be a very cute cat. You know, be like, oh, little, I don't know, um, kitty, Frankie. very sweet. Yeah, super sweet. <laughs> Instead, I'm like, ooh, that's a, it's quite a scary cat. But either way, she loves the cat. The cat's being looked after. And the fact that she needed um, a cat sitter is a good sign because she got a Wimbledon trophy. I wonder what tattoo she's going to get. Um, and I wonder what tattoo her coach is going to get because... Uh, there was a deal done where if she was to win a Grand Slam title, uh, he said he would get a a tattoo. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what they get. What do you reckon she'll go for? Because they're all quite artistic, aren't they? She doesn't like yeah. to refer to each one. She just calls it like art. I'd um, like um, a, maybe a line drawing um, of the... Oh, we could take a borrow from the Hamburg Open, which create the trophy based on the last point. It could be the winning point in a line form art piece from that final, that match point. That was quite an arty point with a volley at the net. I would like her to get the date and time she won the... The she, she had championship point and she won yeah when she got the cat <laughs> when she got the whatsapp <laughs> uh, secured uh, through the whatsapp message yeah no i'd like to see her yeah with date time i've maybe it's a little bit maybe it's a little bit cliche but i think that would be a nice a nice memento uh for a, a very memorable occasion for her i was what gonna go with a strawberry or a uh, good one. um i don't know what else would be quite wimbledon-esque um, a jigsaw, jigsaw piece. Oh, a jigsaw Southfield's piece. tube sign. I do like the jigsaw piece. A jigsaw Joel. piece. A jigs- that's quite artistic. That can be quite artistic. You know, it's a bit of a protest. It was the missing piece. The Grand Slam trophy. It was the missing, the missing piece to my puzzle. Well, one player that's also um, completed, I guess, a piece of their puzzle was Neil Skupski because he won the men's doubles title at Wimbledon, uh, which completes the set of doubles titles because he's already won two mixed doubles titles. He's now won three doubles titles on the trot um, at Wimbledon. So, you know, that's that's probably the most successful Brit really in recent years, winning three titles in a row um, at SW19. Also the first British player to have won both the mixed and the men's since 1926. Um, so fantastic achievement for Neil Skupski. Um, he won along with Wesley Kohlhoff and this was straight sets as well over Granolas and Zabios, 6-4, 6-4. Um, 
so their first slam together and obviously what better place to do it than at mm. Wimbledon um, and and Kim I, I note the who was the last the last Briton to win the men's doubles title was Johnny Murray yeah and do you remember who Johnny Murray won with of course I do and and he's appeared on the podcast Freddie Nelson Freddie we love Freddie <laughs> we do he's Danish legend. Danish legend Frederick Nelson um yeah that was the last Brit to, to win and obviously Jamie Murray is still waiting on a men's doubles here isn't he? he's won the mixed but but he's not almost the, been not the men's. kind of he's almost been I think leapfrogged a little bit by 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 Neil Skupski it's just a mm. shame I feel in terms Salisbury. of Salisbury uh, yeah Salisbury as oh, well yes. um, it's just a shame I feel that like we have all these very handy men's doubles players, but uh, you know, for Neil Skupski, Joe Salisbury, they don't. It's not a all British pairing, so it doesn't necessarily equate to when we come to come to to Davis Cup and the men's doubles. Well, pairing. Dan Evans, maybe he should be a double specialist. Yeah, Joel, well, what exactly. do you think? He might find more success on a doubles court <laughs> than he is this season. Well, I yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say no to that, but um, I guess that's the only frustration is that we're getting these doubles players and they're doing really really well in these grand slams, but they're not it's not in all british pairings and from my point of view i'm like it's almost a tad frustration that frustrating that we can't get them to play with others but i i totally get you know there just might be better players available from other countries and it's just they will one give them rubber though, Joel. you know we could do with some singles players oh, it's, as well, the, it's, the, it's the most important rubber i i would argue after the after the two singles it could keep your nation in the tie or, or put them in front so i do think it is an importance but yeah great to see i'd take a wimbledon title i reckon oh yeah absolutely <laughs> oh, 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 no doubt no doubt <laughs> Well, I'm sure Leon Smith, he was obviously watching, um, so making some decisions. I mean, what I found interesting, um, Neil Skupski has apparently played Jurgen Klopp at Paddle. Uh, is that he's right? He's about to play him, yes. Oh, he's going I, to play him. He right. said he was more nervous for that than he was the Wimbledon final. He's supposed to be facing off with Klopp on the Paddle court. And they've tried to arrange it before, but they're going to do it again in the future. And um, apparently Klopp's been practicing with some of his Liverpool players. So... If we thought the paddle revolution was well and truly underway, if Jurgen Klopp's doing it, I mean, everyone will be soon. I mean, Skupski is, is from Liverpool, massive Liverpool fan. He's probably like, you know, Jurgen Klopp's a bit of a god for him, I suppose. So that's probably why he's more nervous doing that than playing in a Wimbledon final. Um, yeah. <sighs> but anyway, well done, Neil Skupski. Um, fantastic, you know, win for British player. And also well done, Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reid, because they won their fifth Grand Slam doubles title Incredible. together, beating the Japanese pair of Takuya Miki and Takito Oda. They came from a set down um, and it's their 18th Grand Slam doubles title together. Phenomenal effort. Brilliant stuff. Um, Alfie did unfortunately lose in the singles uh, final. So his quest to finally get his hands on the Wimbledon trophy has to wait. It's the only Grand Slam he's not actually won in singles. But um, fantastic effort, obviously, to get to the final and, and also to win in the doubles. So we are rounding off the Wimbledon fortnight with quite a few British champions, which is fantastic. And obviously both Alcaraz and Von were very worthy singles champions and two first-time champions. So... But we've got one more champion to the reveal, champion don't champions, we, guys? The champion, the champion of champions, collector set champion. It's harder than winning on centre court, that's for sure. <laughs> Saving the best till last, mm. yeah. Because, yes, I mean, this was very close and tight affair, wasn't it? A lot of players got three picks correct. We had to have a tiebreaker. 
including, including me. Kim. Yeah. And we had to have a tiebreaker question as usual. And that tiebreaker was how many games would the loser win in the men's Grand Slam singles final? And the answer was 23 which was quite high and before we reveal actually kim you said 12 i just <laughs> want to point that out there because i know your predictions have all been um have all been great and celebrated over the last couple of weeks but you were way off with this one i was expecting maybe a straight sets victory <laughs> for mr Djokovic. um after the first set i was feeling a bit smug but yeah i'm, I'm glad i was wrong on this one so we can reveal the winner with the closest answer, which was uh, 23 games, is... Drum roll, please. Carol Gibson. So, Carol, well done. You are our collector set champion. You will be winning, or you will be getting, a very coveted Tennis Weekly mug in the next couple of weeks. So, we will be reaching out and uh, we'll get that mug to you. But very well done on getting three collect picks and also defeating everyone with the tiebreaker question. Congratulations, Congratulations Carol. Yes, Carol, Amazing well done. stuff. <laughs> Kim, Do you know no, what I think? not bitter at all with that. No, you sounded oh, a little no. bitter there. I lost a worthy winner. Kim, are we still in agreement though, that uh, Chris is taking the slam spoon of shame uh, from this Wimbledon fortnight? I think for the fact that he predicted Coco got off um, and yeah. got that wrong on day one, I think that yeah. was... It was... Writing was on the whole end, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I was going to make a case for it and say at least I had Alcaraz in my final, Joel. So did I. Oh, yeah, you had really so, Sorry, my, my internet connection's gone. Yeah, I, think <laughs> gone. I can't hear what okay. you're saying. But um, Coco Golf, I'll up. take it. Joel, you can pass the spoon to me. Um, I will happily take it and I'll wait till the US Open to get rid of it. <laughs> well, yeah, we've got one more Grand Slam uh, to come. So, yeah, you can, you've got an opportunity to get rid of it. So we'll have to wait and see. But... The Tennis Weekly podcast, our Wimbledon coverage is coming to an end. But don't worry, listeners, uh, we will be back next week, back into tour catch-up mode. And as we said at the, the start of the episode, Chris is already, uh, you are primed to go with, well, I mean, I think there's like six 250s on next week and you are at I'm the- I'm covering the, all of them. Yes. All of them. I want to say the Bastad Open, but you told, and I've been saying that for like, for years and years, but that's not how you pronounce it, is it? Don't be so rude, Joel. Yeah, Joel, it's awful. It's um, Bostor. Um, <laughs> Bostor, so okay. Bostor. I'm, I've been told that by a very reliable Swede that I know. Um, so I'll be here all week um, what, taking in some of the tennis. The weather looks like it will be um, not ideal. We could do with a roof. We do not have one here. Um, but we will be coming out with uh, an episode which hopefully will feature some of the players from this week as well as um, some of the action. So do stay tuned for that. I'm curious to see what one does during a rain delay in, in Bostol. Take a jigsaw puzzle. I wish we had one. We've got a pack of cards and a backgammon set. So um, if I, <laughs> that sounds wild to be fair. It sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but listeners, I hope you've enjoyed all of our coverage over the last fortnight. If you want to show your appreciation um, to the podcast, if you really enjoyed our content, um, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Honestly, it helps us get up the rankings. It helps new listeners find us. So if you want to show your appreciation to the show and uh, what myself, Kim and Chris uh, do alongside our day jobs, um, then that would be really, really appreciated. But we're going to leave it there. 
I hope you have enjoyed for our final time our latest episode of the Tennis Weekly podcast at Wimbledon. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action still to come from the rest of the year on the ATP and WTA tours. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, as Joel says, please do make sure you leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok at Tennis Weekly Pod. Or you can email us on tennisweeklypod at gmail.com and do check out our website, tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back a week on Monday at Tennis Weekly HQ, back into tour catch-up mode. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Kim. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon.